and look with me at Acts chapter 14. which is a brief account of Paul making his report to the church at Antioch concerning his ministry uh, among the Gentiles. Um, so let's read this together and, um, and then not so much talk about the passage, but apply the passage and to illustrate the passage. So Acts 14, beginning at verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word, and thank you that uh, this, this passage, just one short passage in a, a book that tells us the beginning of the story of the work of the gospel throughout the world, thank you that that story is an unending story. It will not end until you finish it when you return and you bring to completion what you have started. We long for that day as we have already prayed and sung. But until it comes, would you please give us grace that we might continue to be faithful, uh, to do our part in seeing uh, this glorious kingdom extended to the ends of the earth. Uh, bless us now as we, as we think together in your presence. Uh, and even as we hear these stories, would you minister to our hearts? We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. There's actually um, something very striking about the first two verses of the book of Acts. And I'll read uh, these first couple of verses and then point out what I, I think uh, is a fairly obvious thing to, to point out. But maybe you've never noticed it before, so it's sort of fun to point it out to those who maybe haven't noticed it or to remind those who have noticed it if they've forgotten it. Uh, Luke, the author of the book, writes this in, his first, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. What's the, what's the interesting thing about that verse? It begs the question, doesn't it, if the first book that Luke wrote was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What is the second book about? It is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. The book is typically described as the Acts of the Apostles. In, in the original, it's just called Acts. But if, if we were to add some sort of clarification to whose acts or deeds are being considered here, we, we really probably ought to view this as the acts of the risen Christ accomplished in his church and through his church. Uh, yeah, it involves the apostles, it involves the church, um, but 
But Luke suggests pretty strongly that the central character in this book is Jesus himself. No longer veiled in weakness and humility, but now exalted, ruling, reigning, king and head over all things, accomplishing his purposes in and through his church out into the world. That's what the book of Acts is about. It is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach as he dwells in the midst of his church and his power by the Spirit's presence being present in the church. He continues, he continues his ministry. It's, it's easy when you're in ministry, easy for me when, as a pastor to think this is sort of all about us. And it isn't. It does involve us. But it is about Jesus. And it is about what he is doing in his church and through his church out into the world. And it's very interesting to me that the book of Acts ends in this way. If you go to the end of chapter 28 of the book of Acts, you find Paul under house arrest with freedom to preach the gospel. And he is preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. And there's an open-endedness to the book of Acts, which I am absolutely convinced is by design. It's just an ongoing story. You see, what we get in those 28 chapters of Acts is the beginning of a story that continues to be written. And it's being written today. And just as it was being written in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and was beginning to be written out into the uttermost parts of the earth as Paul carried the gospel in a westward direction through Asia Minor and then to Greece and Macedonia and eventually to Italy and perhaps even eventually to Spain, the story doesn't stop with him. The story of what Jesus is doing doesn't end there. Now, I know you know this, but I mean, this is sort of electric for me because, as you know, I just got back from Tanzania where I spent two weeks, uh, one of those weeks with 150 or so pastors uh, and wives, evangelists and wives and other people involved in ministry who are the present day instruments whom Jesus is employing for the continuing extension of the gospel of his kingdom out into the world. And, and the hugely encouraging thing to me is that my getting to go to Tanzania and be there for two weeks, now for the eighth time over the course of these last ten years, is really your ministry. I've said this before to you as a congregation, but I, I want to say it again. I want to say it to Zach and to Glenn and to our deacons uh, and, to, and to all of you who prayed and followed the blog posts, um, to those of you who offered words of encouragement before I left. I can't tell you how significant it is to me and how significant it is to the folks in Tanzania, the manner in which you have embraced this ministry. Um, I, I don't want to go into the whole history of this thing, but I will just say to you that it is a vastly different thing 
to have this sense that you are being commissioned by a group of people, people whom you care for, people whom you love, people from whom you receive care and love. It is a vastly different thing to sense that you are being commissioned and sent on their behalf to do this ministry from the feeling that you have to ask permission to do something and are granted permission to do something that you want to do, but which, if the truth be known, the folks from whom you are going would prefer that you not go. It's a big difference, folks. And I am so grateful to you for the manner in which you have supported me and the manner in which you have supported this whole endeavor. So I'm thanking you for this incredible privilege and want to say to you again, I really feel, really feel and felt commissioned and sent by you. And and the picture on uh, my last Sunday here before going to Tanzania of Zach and Glenn with their arms on my shoulders praying for me and leading you in prayer for me is a picture that was emblazoned in the frontal lobes of my consciousness while I was gone for these last two and a half weeks. So that we, the point here is that we are a part of an ongoing story, right? The inspired and inerrant portion of that story is recorded for us in the book of Acts. But the story continues, and you are so much a part of this. And it is a privilege for me to be the one who gets to go. Now, somebody said this morning, we need to send a whole host of people over there to go do stuff. Well, i got to be honest with you. It is not an easy place to get to, be in, or come back from. It's hard to get there, it's hard to be there, and it's hard to get back from there. And you don't always come home alone. In ten years of doing this, I have come home with a friend three times. This was one of those times. And uh, I thought I was going to die on Wednesday. But God is good, and I'm not dead yet. It just felt like it, and I'm still a little wobbly. So if I pass out, just give me some water, stand me up, uh, and I'll keep going. If, you're, if you really want to go, come and talk to me. But I'll just tell you the truth about how hard it is to be there. Having said that, it was a glorious trip. And what I'd like to do is, honestly, is take my cue, and I did this last year when I got back, and I think I've done it each year when I got back. I'd like to take my cue from the Apostle Paul uh, in these verses, and just since the church is gathered here together, since the church that commissioned me and sent me is here this morning, I'd just like to give you a little report. I'll tell you a few stories in the next 20 or so minutes. And I would like to do it by focusing on the four main areas of ministry that we together are involved in uh, in this ministry in Tanzania. 
Before I do that, I have to bring you greetings from Peter Ketula and all of his staff, Joelson BT and Peter and Wheelie uh, and all of the staff, and greetings from all of the pastors and all of the evangelists and wives who were at the conference. I, I, I will be held accountable on the day of judgment if I do not bring greetings and, and expressions of great thankfulness and gratitude back to you from Tanzania. So greetings and thank yous from all of the folks who gathered together. So the four main areas of ministry that we're involved in over there are, first of all, the conference. Let me tell you just a little bit about the conference, what we did. And and by the way, the reason for doing this this morning um, is because you're all here. Try to do it tonight, and and it's fine. A, A quarter of you would be here. So you're all, and that's fine, but you're all here, so you get to hear the stories, all of you. You all need to know about this um, and need to get the report. Next Sunday evening, God willing, from, from over 3,000 photographs and, and about, I don't know, 20 minutes of video footage and some other stuff, I'm hoping, with somebody's help, to create some sort of a presentation that will give you a real visual feel for uh, what we're doing over there. But this morning, uh, just just a report and a few stories. First, the conference. Um, let me tell you um, about my preaching and teaching at the conference. Um, the central theme for the conference this year was stewardship. And I used the material that I used here in our church, many of you know this, uh, last year to talk about stewardship among these pastors and wives. Now, I did some stuff from Romans, some... It was more devotional and, and preaching uh, to encourage the pastors and wives. Um, but, but the real core stuff of the conference was a series of lectures, actually seven of them, um, revolving around this matter of stewardship. And in the first session, what I tried to do was put stewardship in the context of this story that I'm reminding you of. Um, God has a purpose for history, and his purpose is to restore what has been ravaged by sin in the fall. And, and so uh, in the first session, I just created the architecture, the biblical architecture, out of which and through which that story unfolds. Creation, fall, redemption, the chapter of the story in which we live, and then consummation or restoration, the final chapter of the story. Um, and then in the second lecture, what I did was uh, this, this incredibly enjoyable thing, which is to look for the main character, especially in the Old Testament, and the main themes that emerge as this story unfolds. Because I, I want people to understand stewardship, the, the, the proper use of our money, is a, is a much bigger thing than simply giving to a particular church. My stewardship has to be understood in the light of this unfolding story. God is doing something in history, and the stewardship of the entirety of my life has to be connected to that story. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. I'm a disciple of the king. Everything that I am, all that I have, is connected to that unfolding story. So the point was to try to create the big picture context for understanding stewardship. And then in the next three lectures, uh, we worked our way through some biblical material, looking at specific passages, passages 
that we worked through last fall. Genesis 4, Abel's offering. Giving, if you don't remember this from last fall, I'll remind you, giving is gratitude to God for his goodness. Giving is gratitude to God for his goodness. Abel lived after the fall. Abel heard the stories. The text doesn't tell us this, but Abel is a human being just like you're a human being, and Abel had parents just like you had parents. And if you're Christian parents, which presumably everybody is here pretty much, if you're not, come see me after the service, because we do need to talk about the kind of the core and basic thing. But Christian parents, people who have tasted the grace of God, which is true of Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis 3.21, that when they had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, God slaughtered a beast and clothed their guilt and shame with the skins of animals. The first picture of substitution, a life was going to be given in order to cover the guilt and the shame, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Don't you suppose they told that story to their sons? Abel and Cain lived on the other side of the fall, and their parents most certainly would have talked with them about the story of their own experience of the grace of God. And Eve, when Cain was born, is the one who cried out, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten this son. And I'm, and I'm so convinced that some of what is going on for her when she utters those words is a recognition that God has not abandoned her. This is after the fall. God has every reason to abandon her. God has every reason to leave her to her own devices, leave her to herself. But he does not do that. He doesn't abandon her. He gives her a son. And the commentators will tell you that some of what is suggested in that is the echo of the first promise that is made back in Genesis 3.15. With the help of the Lord, I have gotten a son. Maybe this is the seed of the woman who's going to put everything right. So her words are words of gratitude, and her words are words of hope. They're gospel words. It's a gospel expression. With the help of the Lord, I have gotten this son. And Abel not so much with words, but with actions, is mimicking what he's heard from his mother. He brings the first fruits of his flocks, the first and the best, the fat portions, as an expression of gratitude to God for his continuing goodness even after the fall. Now, I want to tell you, it's a challenging thing to look at people who are desperately poor. Desperately poor. And say, everybody has something. Everybody has something. Everybody on this side of the fall is a beneficiary of God's continuing goodness. And the response to that goodness is to bring an offering. That's what Abel's was, and that's what ours is to be. And then we move on from there to Exodus 36. Giving is gratitude for God's grace. Remember this, this story? This one was really fun because I had a very, very sympathetic audience uh, in Musoma at the conference. 
This is the passage, Exodus 36, where Moses has to tell the people, you remember, to stop bringing their gifts for the construction of the tabernacle, the place where the presence of God would dwell in the midst of the nation. Very sympathetic audience when I ask this question. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to say to your people, stop giving, we don't, or we have enough. We have no need of any more. There were smiles and guffaws and nods of assent. No, I've never had to do that. What is it that accounts for the fact that the people of Israel were so lavish in their giving that they had to be restrained from giving more? And the only answer is they had experienced a lavish grace. And I walked them through the seven chapters of that story, beginning with the marriage covenant at Exodus 19 and the people playing the harlot down in the valley and the breaking of the, of the tables of the law, which were the documents sealing the covenant relationship between God and his people and God saying to, to Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy them. They're stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And Moses, playing the role of Christ, intercedes and says, don't do that. What will the Egyptians say that you brought them out here in the wilderness just to destroy them? And then God says, okay, I won't destroy them, but I'm not going up with them. I'll send my angel, but I'm not going with them. They're harlots. They've committed spiritual adultery. They can go into the promised land, but I'm not going with them. And Moses plays the role of of intercessor again, fulfilling, fulfilling for us in typological form what Jesus would do as the greater Moses. And Moses says, if you don't go up with us, if you don't dwell in the midst of your people, what is there to distinguish us from all of the nations of the earth? See, here's the thing, folks. You can have the promised land. You can have all of the blessings of the promised land. All of the fullness of the promised land. But if God is not present in the promised land, it's not the promised land. And if you're in the wilderness, and God is with you in the wilderness, it's the promised land. To be in the promised land without God is to have nothing. To be in the wilderness and to have God is to have everything. And Moses intercedes and God responds. And one of the first things that happens after God's positive response, after God says, I will go up with my people, are the commands and the orders to collect offerings for the construction of the tabernacle. And what is the tabernacle? It's the visible, visual, material, physical evidence, representation of God in the midst of his people. And when the people see that they are not going to get what they do deserve, they're not going to get what they do deserve, but they are going to get what they don't deserve. A lavish grace. Their giving becomes lavish. 
And so from there we went to Malachi chapter 3. And the third session was giving is gratitude for privilege. Giving is gratitude for the privilege of participation in the work of the gospel. Why do you gather the tithes into the storehouse? Just to kind of briefly summarize this thing, you gather the tithes into the storehouse for one reason, so that the work of the gospel can proliferate, so that the priesthood can do what the priesthood is supposed to do. And the priesthood is supposed to do essentially two things, show the gospel and tell the gospel. The Levites are masters at show and tell. Show and tell. The whole sacrificial system shows it, and the teaching of the whole of the law of God, the whole of the word of God, tells it. That's what the Levitical priests do. And the gathering of the tithes enables the priests to do the work they're called to do, show and tell. And this remarkable thing happened, really remarkable thing. In the course of that lecture, I said to folks, these pastors, said, you know, The people you serve will never rise above the level of their leadership. In Malachi's day, the priests were neglecting their duties. The people will never rise above the level of their leadership. If you are not feeding yourselves, nourishing your own souls, bathing yourselves I didn't use these words, but pickling yourselves in the gospel. You won't have anything to give. At the end of that session, that third session, on the duties of the priesthood and the reason for the tithe, the one who was leading that session asked the pastors for a time of prayer and reflection. And in the course of that time of reflection, he asked them this question, basically this question. If you have this sense that you're neglecting your duties, raise your hand. And I I didn't count, but hands went up immediately. And it led to a time of real repentance among these pastors and wives and evangelists. And I had a number of people after that session make personal comments to me about how helpful it was how important it was to be reminded of what are their core and central responsibilities. It's not programs. It's not managing things. It's not putting out fires. It is bathing, pickling yourself, nourishing yourself in the realities of the gospel so that when you stand before your people, you have something to give them. People will never rise above the level of their leadership. So from there, we dealt with the obvious question, as we did last fall. I thought tithing was an Old Testament thing. And the answer to that, of course, is it is. And I can't go into this whole thing because there isn't time. But the bottom line is, I said, okay, you don't want to deal with the Old Testament or your people don't want to deal with the Old Testament. You want to know the New Testament standard? I don't think so. I don't think so. You'll be much happier with the Old Testament standard if you really wrestle with the New Testament standard, which is Luke 21, the, 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 the widow commended by Jesus because when she gave, she didn't gave, give from her overflow or her surplus. She gave everything she had. 
And then the other example, of course, the other New Testament example is Jesus himself, who was rich beyond all splendor, but for our sakes became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. I just said, you know, okay, you don't want to deal with the Old Testament thing of the tie? That's fine. Let's deal with the New Testament standard. Do you really want to? <laughs> it's a much, much higher standard. But it's, it's not surprising, is it? Because we're on this side of the cross where we have a much fuller expression of the greatness and the beauty and the wonder of the grace of God. And so the response of those who embrace and understand and, and catch glimpses of the beauty of the gospel are even more lavish in their giving. So that's the conference. I had several people say afterward, best conference, best conference yet. And that's at a conference dealing with this issue of stewardship and tithing among people who do not have very much. It was a very, very encouraging thing. And I can only thank you for your prayers because I know who the speaker was. So thank you for that. Second thing, a bit about the pastors. So many of you have responded to the Adopt-A-Pastor program. It's this program where for $30 a month you can support an indigenous missionary. $20 goes, 20 or $25 goes to the pastor and his family. The balance goes into an account designed to cover the costs of the conference each year. Henry Kibiti, if you read the blog post, you read a little bit of this story. Henry, I've known for 10 years now. He's a dear brother. We are, we are as good as you can be, I guess. We're good friends. He labors in the village of Kabasa, uh, and uh, is a, it's a very remote place. It's a very hard place. Uh, Henry took me aside and, and said, I want to thank you. Uh, so much for the conference, for all I've learned through the years, all of the encouragement I've received. And I want to thank you for the funds that have been made available through the Adopt Pastor program. He said, my oldest son just finished the equivalent of, of our high school. He's moved away from home. He's found a job. And now he is helping to support the ministry of my church in Kabasa. He would not have been able to finish school if it had not been for the funds that we received over the years to cover the cost of tuition. Tuition is covered by the government through fourth grade, but beyond fourth grade, families have to pay for education. And this this young man now has the equivalent of a high school degree, which is a big deal over there, um, and, and has a job, is gainfully employed, and himself now is is a source of support for his father's ministry. And that could not have happened without uh, the, the funds that went to him through the Adopt-A-Pastor program. So thank you from Henry. Henry asked me to thank you. So thank you. I want to tell you really briefly about Alfio Mugeta. Um, there was this, uh, Augustine did this thing describing the four states of a human being, Adam's four states, Adam in his perfect condition and then his fallen condition and then his redemption underway condition and his perfection condition, passe picare, passe non picare, non passe non picare, that kind of stuff, you know. Well, we've named this guy, non passe non picare means not able not to sin, okay? 
We have named this guy not able not to dance. He, he, he cannot sit still when the music starts. He doesn't care who is around. When I see him, I think Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. He just has to dance. He can't sit still. There's a village in the diocese called Majita, and it is um, among the staff the hardest place, um, not so much because of its remoteness and that sort of thing, but because of the hardness of the particular tribal group where this, this church is. And Alfio, when he learned about this place, went to the bishop and said to the bishop, please send me there. Please send me there. Alfio is a recipient of funds from the Adopt-A-Pastor program, and it is a huge thing in his life. He has had, because the church is so small and so poor, he has had to hire himself out to farmers in the community uh, in order to earn money uh, to support his family. So the Adopt-A-Pastor funds are making a big difference in Alfio Mugeta's life. Just two stories. I could tell you 20, um, do more next week. Um, and then the third one is just this from a retired pastor. Great testimony. He was the son of the village witch doctor. Um, and when he was 14 years old, his father told him to go do harm to a Western missionary who had come to their village. So he went to a bar, 14 years of age, got himself good and liquored up. And late in the afternoon, found this American missionary in a somewhat public place and assaulted him with a, with a, with a, 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 a stake and, and tried to kill him. He was, uh, he was apprehended and he was brought before the village elders to be tried. The missionary was there, of course, and the missionary asked the village elders that the charges be dropped that he not be prosecuted. And so the village elders acceded to that request. And this 14-year-old boy that day made his way to where this missionary was staying. It was uh, late in the evening. He climbed up into a tree. He slept in a tree through the night. The next morning, when the missionary came out of his house, he approached him. The missionary ducked. <laughs> But the boy followed the missionary home because he wanted to know what it was about his life that would cause him to drop the charges against him. And the missionary led the boy to Christ. He eventually became a pastor in the denomination, is now a retired pastor, no safety net for these folks over there. And the Adopt-A-Pastor funds are helping to provide a living for him and for his wife. So just, just three stories. And then, I, okay, I got two things real quick, just, just in the last couple of minutes. Preaching. I preached the two Sundays that I was there. Oh, man. Um, the first Sunday was in Tarime. I preached the same sermon both, both in Tarime and in Misoma. And in the sermon, uh, I began with the story of the raising of Lazarus, but I focused on the first five or six verses of John 11, uh, in which the text tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother. 
And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I mean, that's a setup, right? I mean, that is just, that's a tater, man. You can take aim at that one. Why in the world would Jesus, who loved Lazarus, stay where he was when he learned Lazarus was sick? And the bottom line answer is Jesus is always going for the deeper need. He's always going for the deeper need. And here was the punchline. Could Jesus have healed Lazarus? Absolutely. To illustrate this, I used the story of the the lame man who was brought before Jesus in Mark chapter 2. He healed him. But in his case, he went for the deeper need. Remember what he said to him? My son, your sins are forgiven. I didn't come here for forgiveness. I came here so that I could walk. But if Jesus had healed that man and he had gotten up and walked, he would have walked away from Jesus in the direction of eternal death. If he remains lame but has his sins forgiven, he walks in the direction of eternal life. Why did Jesus stay where he was? because he wanted to show Mary and Martha and anybody else who had ears to hear that he had the ability to do the greater thing, not just heal, not just heal a lame man, not just cleanse a leper, but he has the ability to give eternal life, to forgive sins, to take away the guilt and pollution of sin. At the end of the sermon, I did something we don't do in this church We do it in this country, but we don't do it in Presbyterian churches. I had an invitation. It's not the first time I've done it. But I said, look, if you're here this morning and you bring guilt and shame with you, Jesus stands before you and says, come. If you need to have your sins forgiven, Jesus stands before you and says, come. If If you live in fear of death, Jesus stands before you and says, come, I can take away your uncleanness, I can forgive your sins, and I can free you from the fear of death. So the Swahili guy took over, and he did the invitation. I put my head down. Instantly, 60 people came forward. And he said to these folks, if you want to come to Christ for the first time, step to the right. Nobody did. All 60 were there to bring their uncleanness, their guilt, their fears to Jesus. So he said to me, why don't you pray for him? I said, okay. So I'll pray. No translation. God doesn't need a translator. I'll pray. I started to pray, and 60 people started praying out loud, confessing their sins. I said to him, what's going on here? They're confessing their sins. And what am I thinking? Not at Christ the King. I mean, maybe at first assembly. Now, look, different cultures, people do things in different ways. I want to tell you, it was a sweet and, frankly, powerful moment. And something unusual was going on. And the reason I really believe something unusual was going on is because I preached the same sermon the next week in a different church, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. Same powerful preacher. Same powerful sermon. Look, 
God is sovereign in these things, and God was pleased to do something in that service in Tarima. And it was really a privilege to be a part of it. Last thing, very quickly. We, um, by the time we left, had gotten word from the drilling company that we had successfully completed six well, well drilling projects, which means that life is different for between 25 and 30,000 people this week. Life is different. Um, I'll talk more about this next Sunday. I hope you'll come to see pictures and video and, and all the rest. But all of this is just to say um, it is a privilege to be a part of this. The, the work of the gospel continues. Jesus, the ruling and reigning king, is still doing things in his church and through his church out into the world. And you all are a part of it. The ways in which you have supported this, given your money, offered your prayers. This is us together in this. And so God is to be praised. You are to be thanked by me and by the folks in Tanzania. So thank you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, Thank you for the encouragement uh, that I receive uh, from from a trip like this. And I I trust that your people this morning are encouraged as well. Uh, We want more, Lord Jesus. We want more. Um, Please, uh, would you continue to show us your favor? Would you continue to pour out upon us your blessing? Would you continue to prosper us to the end that we can be uh, even more privileged to see Uh, the fruit of the gospel in the midst of the world. Uh, Hear these prayers, Lord Jesus. We make them in your name. Amen.